How's it going? Just had uh, a bunch of banana bread, made some banana bread with uh, Christina, my fiance, last night. It was actually delicious. I've never made banana bread before, but that is going to be a new go-to recipe for me because it was <laughs> quite good. So I'm feeling, I'm feeling real loose, feeling real light, ready to... Uh, knock out another podcast for y'all. So thank you so much for coming back to the Chris Arslan podcast. And I am your host, Chris, obviously. And this is episode number two. And excited to uh, excited to talk with y'all. And I got to stop moving my hand so much. It's uh, It looks like it's making the camera shake. So let's see if I can stabilize. There we go. Shake my hands. Doesn't seem like it's uh it's moving as much now. All right, cool. So, so still still figuring out this whole podcast setup, but we'll make it work. Also, I don't know why, but my hat looks like it's on crooked in the camera. But you know, we'll just figure it out. This must be what it looked like to everybody all the time. But uh, when you're sitting here looking at yourself making a making a podcast, it's it's quite quite just awkward. I'm just looking at myself talking. But anyways. Excited for this episode. It's going to be a, a big one. Uh, my first, you know, real episode where I'm actually going to be going into a few subjects. So first thing I want to talk about is a book that I just recently read and finished earlier this week called The 4-Hour Workweek. I'm going to go into that and kind of my thoughts on the book. Really like it. Excited to share that with you. Then probably what most of y'all came here for is I'm going to be talking about what happened with me and Arslan Fleet. And then, last but not least, we'll dive into a quick mailbag. Thank you so much for sending me some questions. I'm going to bang out a few of them here on the show. All right, so first segment of the show today is going to be a quick review of a book I just recently finished reading called The 4-Hour Workweek. It's written by Tim Ferriss, and the book is all about how you can essentially escape the rat race of working a 9-to-5 job or working for your company and how you can start to make a lot of money without putting a lot of time into doing so. That's really what I've been doing my entire career. I wish I would have read this book in college or in high school because it really would have opened my eyes to all the possibilities. I've kind of stumbled into doing a lot of the things this book talks about without ever actually reading it. Uh, the way that I even heard about this book, which is, I'm shocked I've never heard of this before because after reading it, I hear people talking about it or see it all over social media. That also might just be the algorithm in my phone listening to me, but I see it everywhere now. It is one of, you know, it's on the New York's best-selling books. And so it's a very famous and well-known book. And so the way I even came about learning about this book is I was actually out snowboarding the other day and was by myself just shredding because there's not a lot of people that <laughs> are just able to do nothing on a random Tuesday. And so I'm, I'm riding at uh, at winter park and get on the chairlift and started making small talk with a guy sitting next to me. And he was working, he's working in sales. He has a house that he's house hacking. He likes to travel literally the whole world. I mean, he was talking about how he's basically income hacked his entire professional life. And he did that or did that because he read a book called The 4-Hour Workweek. And it really inspired him to start making money passively so that he could do whatever he wanted all the time. Hence why he was at Winter Park on a random Tuesday snowboarding with me. 
So we ended up ripping it down the mountain a few times together. He's actually a very good rider. And and he recommended the book. So sure enough, I decided, what the hell, why not, why not check it out? So uh, just finished reading it. And it is a very, very, very good read. So one of the big takeaways from the book <clears throat> is that you don't need to be rich to live a lifestyle that makes you feel rich. So Tim Ferriss in the book refers to this as NRs or new rich. And so the way that he kind of explains it is think if you're working a job where you're making $150,000 a year, but on the flip side, you're working 50 plus hours a week at that job. That's probably also not, you know, considering commuting to and from the office. This isn't also considering you happen to answer random emails and you know in the evenings on the weekends you know so you're making one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year great that's that's awesome that's good money but you're working all the time for it so when are you actually getting to enjoy your life on the contrary what if you were making only forty thousand dollars a year but you only needed to work. 10 hours a week, you could do it remote, you can turn off your phone, never have to worry about anybody hitting you up when you're when you're not working. Which would you prefer? I know me personally, I would rather make $40,000 a year, only have to put 10 hours of, uh, of work in a week and be wherever I want to rather than have to be in an office making $150,000 a year. And that's kind of how I've set up my career where let me see how I can make maybe not a ton of money, but make a good amount of money with as little work involved as possible to do so. And so that's what he describes as the new rich. Because now instead of you slaving away at an office job, 50 plus hours a week, you're able to make maybe not all that money, but able to make a fraction of that money with very little work involved. And then you can either add another income stream to make another 40 hours or $40,000 a year, add another income stream to make $40,000 a year, all of which you're spending little to no time working on them. So then in substitution of working a job, now you can go off and do fun crap. So you can go snowboarding, you can go caving, you can go hiking, you can go backpacking, you can go travel, you know, to Europe, you can go travel to Hawaii, whatever you want to do with your time that you're not now stuck in an office doing, you can go do. And that's what he defines as Tim Ferriss defines as the new rich or, or in ours in the book. And so this is really what I've been doing my entire career. I just didn't realize there was a, a handbook, a book <laughs> already explaining how to do all this. So I've already actually implemented a lot of these practices that Tim talks about in the four hour work week into my own life. It's just cool to see it kind of it kind of validates my entire career up to this point for myself. Like, oh, OK, there are other people doing this. This is a thing. Also, there were a lot of cool takeaways that I'd never done or thought about doing that I'm going to start to implement into my job or into my career moving forward to even further maximize my, my efficiency. So I want to recap a few of my favorite parts of the book for you. And then if, if you like these parts, I would highly recommend going and buying the book and checking it out or getting the audiobook and listening to it because I think it will really help you if you are trying to escape the rat race, not be stuck in a nine to five job. Now, if you love your job, you find it super, you know, empowering, you know, maybe this book isn't necessarily like the perfect thing for you. Cause this is kind of talking about, Hey, I don't want to be stuck doing my job all the time, but Hey, if, if that's more fun than going and hanging out with friends or going and traveling, I do know people that are like that, that quite literally would rather work and be, you know, behind their desk grinding away than going out and 
experiencing like having new experiences more power to you this book i still think has some cool takeaways that you could you could gain from it but nonetheless i want to recap a few of my favorite parts of it so first thing that i really enjoyed about the book was when tim ferris goes into how you can set up income streams on autopilot and more specifically how you can set up a business that will allow you to make money on autopilot hence the the name of the chapter so first part of developing a business or a automated stream of income is figuring out what business you want to get into so there's really two ways first there's there's kind of two ways you can do this first way is having a nine-to-five job figuring out a way to get that job to be fully remote and then figuring out a way to essentially hire they're called virtual assistants or vas uh hire people to do parts of your job so let's say your job's paying you seventy thousand dollars a year well now if you can work remote separate yourself from you know your manager or your boss and then hire people VAs in your place to do a lot of your busy work. So cool. Let's say that you're making seventy thousand dollars a year. Then you pay VAs and and people off of you know Fiverr or, or Upwork or different different contracting spots where they can do a lot of the work for you. Well, cool. Maybe not. You're not making seventy thousand dollars a year anymore. Seventy five thousand dollars a year anymore. You have to pay about twenty five thousand dollars for other people to do tasks, respond to your emails, make graphics for you, build email campaigns, do cold calls on your behalf. Whatever the case is, you have to pay them, let's say twenty to $30,000 a year. Well, cool. You're still left with around 50, 30, or sorry, you're still left with around 40 or $50,000. And now instead of working, say 40 to 50 hours a week, now you're just managing the people that are doing essentially your job. And you're now able to make $40,000 a year, but you're also only working 10 hours a week, you're also remote. So that's one way to make income. Another way to make income is by starting a business. So that's when we go in here, go into specifically here is how you can pick what business to start and, and how you can start to make money at that business. And it takes very, very, very little money. I've already been doing a lot of these practices, but it was cool to hear kind of in depth how you should go about setting this up. So First things first, how do you even know what business to pick? How do you know what industry to go into? And do you want to go into a really big market like cat toys or like biking or cars, like something that is is very saturated but has a lot of people in it? Or do you want to go into something more niche? And what, what Tim argues, and honestly, I would argue as well, is that it is better to be a big fish in a small pond than to be a small fish in a massive pond. You know, think if I was trying to sell dog toys or cat toys, there is a million and a half people trying to sell that on Amazon. If you go on Amazon right now, there are literally pages and pages and pages and pages of cat and dog toys. Where on the contrary, if I wanted to start selling, say, paintball gloves, well, paintballing is not as big of a market as cats. <laughs> Everyone, there's a million people that are pet owners. There are not millions and millions and millions of paintballers. So if I wanted to start a business selling paintball gloves, it's a much more niche market, which means it's going to be a lot easier for me to break into, a lot less money I'm going to have to spend to do advertising for it, and will in turn hopefully allow me to be more profitable in it. So first we want to figure out what markets we want to start to try and penetrate. And the way that Tim says that you should do this, and I totally agree and I think it's a really fun exercise, is start to write down 
all of either the social industries, the, the professional groups, the hobbies, anything that you've ever been involved with. So for me, you know, I used to run track and cross country back in the day. So I'll write that down on a piece of paper. I obviously am familiar with the rental market or real estate market. I'll write that down. Same with Turo. Same with now podcasting. Whatever industries and, and groups that I'm familiar with and understand, I'm going to write down on a piece of paper. Then after that, I'm going to start to look up, hey, what, what YouTube channels do I subscribe to? What podcasts do I listen to? What Instagram pages do I follow? And start to build out a list of all of those. So let's say that I've read, obviously, the 4-Hour Workweek. I've read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I've read, you know, when I was a kid, I used to read a bunch of Goosebump books. Whatever the case is, write down all the books that you've read. Write down all the Facebook groups that you're a part of. Write down all the podcasts that you listen to. You know, the Instagram accounts that you follow. Cool. So next, we're going to want to figure out how much money these people spend. So I'll just give you an example from what, what I wrote down when I was doing this exercise. So in one group, there are people that play pickleball. Pickleballers are typically older. They're retired. They typically are living off their 401k. They make, they've made plenty of money. They've made enough money to where they can be retired and play pickleball at 11 o'clock in the afternoon. So that's one side. On the other side, let's think about uh, cavers. So these are people that go into caves, they're climbing deep in into the underground and exploring, you know, mother nature, but <laughs> in the dark. All right. So when you're first just talking about it, you would think, okay, cool. Well, obviously pickleballers are going to be the ones that spend more money. Whereas cavers, you know, they're a bunch of kids in college and, you know, just kind of crazy extreme sports people that are probably cheaper. However, when you take a little bit of a deeper look, pickleball, there's really not a lot of things you spend money on. You spend money on a paddle. You only need one paddle. And then you'll spend money on balls, and they last you forever. It's not like golfing where you hit them into the, the, the forest or into the water. You get balls, and they last you forever. So pickleball is not necessarily, although the people that are playing pickleball are stereotypically going to be wealthier than people that are climbing into caves, people that are going into caves are actually typically spending more money. They have to get good headlights. They need like two or three backup headlights. They need batteries for their lights. They need helmets. They need elbow pads. They need knee pads. They need special shirts. They need special boots. So with cavers, and also you got to think about, they're crawling through caves, ripping up their gear left and right, and they have to get new ones. So when you're looking at both, both parties, although pickleball people, pickleball players are typically going to have more money than cavers, cavers are going to be spending more money, which means that we would rather market to cavers in this scenario, hypothetically. So now we figured out which ones are going to spend the most money. So let's say we figured, you know, cavers and snowboarders is another one that I wrote down. Well, so next we're going to need to figure out which one's going to be the cheapest to market to. So the way that you do that is you're going to want to look up in Tim Ferriss's book, in the 4-Hour Workweek, he was talking about reaching out to like magazines and, and television stations. That, I think, is a little bit outdated. This book was written, I mean, it was written like 15, 20 years ago at this point. So the way that I kind of pivoted the book is let's reach out to YouTube channels, social media pages, different influencers, and see who can actually start promoting some of, some of this stuff. So if I was going to do this for snowboarding and caving, I would go on YouTube, I would go on TikTok, I would go on Twitter, I'd go on Instagram, I'd go on Facebook, and start reaching out to these groups and these pages and these influencers and asking if they would do some sort of affiliate marketing deal with me to 
try and build up the brand awareness for my said product. Once I've figured out what groups are going to be the easiest to market to and, and also going to be spending the most money, it's time for me to start brainstorming on some product ideas. So we're going to think of, you know, what do say snowboarders or cavers want and need in their daily, in their daily sport. Once I've kind of figured that out, I'll, I'll go and figure out how much it would cost to actually purchase and start to manufacture one of those products or one of those offerings. So it could be either I'm trying to sell a new type of, of gear or equipment, or I want to sell a lesson or, or a coaching course, whatever it is, I'm going to look for uh, gaps in the market that I can fill at a good price point. Then once I've figured out, hey, this is what I want to offer, I'll find suppliers. You could do this through, you know, Alibaba or AliExpress. Those are ways that you can get in touch with Chinese manufacturers. Or if I want to sell like a coaching course, I'm going to look up how much it would cost to go and develop a coaching course. Then I'm going to try and make sure that I am doing five to 10 times markup on my product. So if it costs me, just easy math, $10 to purchase and acquire a product to sell to a snowboarder, I'm going to want to make sure I can sell that, resell that for $50 to $100 to the end consumer. Because if I'm trying to you know, do like a drop shipping method where I'm only making like a dollar or two profit per item, well, I'm going to have to work literally 10 times harder than somebody that's able to do a 10 times markup. So it's more about building the, the, the credibility in your brand than it is about the volume that you're doing. All right. So then we've, so we now figured out how we're going to market. We figured out, or I should say, we figured out the industry that we're going to, we're going to use. We figured out, you know, the means of marketing through whatever influencers able to do what for us. And we figured out a product. Now it's time to basically do beta testing. So this is where we'd probably get a prototype or two we'd start to get photos of it. We would share it with, you know, our influencers that we're going to be marketing, get their feedback, see if we need to tweak anything on the product, start to build out the website. All of this is going to be done for less than a couple hundred dollars. You know, website all in is going to cost you no more than 30 bucks between the domain and hosting 30 bucks max, maybe 50, you know, to get a prototype, you might have to spend a little bit of money for doing a product. If you're just developing a coaching course, that's like essentially free. You have to find a website that you want to host it on or, or a, a, you know, a video learning software that you can, that you can host it on, but very simple to do as well. So we've now developed a prototype or, or a product. We're then sending it out to people that are actually able to give us good, honest feedback on the product. Then we're going to have our website go live for essentially a soft launch. All right. So right now, once again, we're only a, maybe a couple hundred dollars in, all in on this on this endeavor. So we're going to list it online, either on eBay, Amazon, or on our own website. And we're going to see if anybody's even willing to pay what we are trying to sell it for. So I would make a website, say I'm trying to sell, I don't know, snowboarding mittens. So I have snowboarding mittens. I'm going to make a website. I'm going to get some testimonials on it from some of my influencers saying that they like the product. And then I'm going to put it, honestly, I would shoot high. So you're going to put it for about 10x 
whatever you acquired the product for. So if I, I acquired the product for $10 uh, a unit, I'm going to market for around $100 online just to see if I can do it. Because no point in getting into the business if you can't sell it for a good, a good margin. So we're going to have a soft launch. We're going to do some PPP advertising or PPC, pay-per-click advertising on Google or on Instagram, Facebook, or having one of our influencers do a, a post on their story and see if you can get anybody to click through and, and try and purchase the product. So you can't have them pay you if you don't have the product ready to sell. So you can either have a small batch of products that you can sell and see if you can sell out of them. Or what you can also do is once they get to the page where they're able to actually buy the product, you can just say, hey, it's, it's out of stock. Put your name here on a uh, on a wait list so once it comes back in stock we can notify you to buy it we're basically just trying to see does anybody actually want to purchase said product if people want to purchase the product great we're off and running let's order all the products and let's let's start selling them if we have this kind of soft launch and there's really not a lot of interest in in the product that's where we're going to need to pivot either we need to pivot the the messaging we need to pivot on the price we need to pivot on you know, what, what avenues we're doing to, to find our, our customers. Also, we might just have the wrong product and, oh, well, boohoo, we spent 300 bucks and it, it, it was a bust. Let's try our next product uh, offering. So it's kind of a cool concept. And then, uh, and then also with, a, with a, such a large margins, if you're able to sell it for such a higher percentage, that'll also give you a lot of flexibility to do different, different offerings, different add-ons, work with different influencers, work with different media streams, and hopefully make money's, money in different avenues. So I thought this was a really cool concept of the book of how to actually make money through, through building a business. So the next part of the book that I thought was really cool was a story that Tim Ferriss, kind of hypoth- a hypothetical story that he goes through. So there's there's obviously the stereotypical person that's working a bajillion hours a week at their job or at their company and then there's what you know he describes as the the new rich. And so this is kind of a little hypothetical story of a fisherman. So we got a fisherman. He goes out to sea, he catches a few fish, comes back in, takes half the fish, drops them off at a local a local restaurant, sells them for enough money to comfortably pay all of his expenses, pay his rent, put a little bit of money away. And then the rest of the fish cooks for dinner, hangs out with his family on the beach. He works, you know, whatever. Works for two, three hours fishing. The rest of the day, he's just relaxing, drinking wine, hanging out with his wife and kids on the beach. Then some American businessman sees him and is like, hey, like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm just got done fishing for the day and about to go hang out with my, my wife and kids. And he's like, well, how much are you making on, on each fish? You know, I'm making, you know, I, I sell them for, you know, whatever, let's just say 25 bucks, 25 bucks each. Well, you're crazy. Why, why are you only, you know, coming in after you only caught, you know, 10 fish, you should be out there all day catching hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of fish. He's like, okay, but, but why? Well, well then after you catch hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of fish, you can then sell them to all the restaurants here in town. He goes, okay, but why? Well, you can make way more money. And then you can 
you can then start to uh, sell your company to a big investor or have it go live on the stock exchange and IPO and, uh, and make even more money. Okay, but why? Well, then once you make all this money, you can then hang out on the beach and drink wine with your kids and your wife. And it's like, well, I'm already doing that right now. I'm literally doing that right now. I don't need to scale this thing up to a massive company that's going to take years and years and years to do so when I already have the life that you're describing that I should be aspiring to have. I already have it now. So I think this is just kind of a cool lesson for all of us as, you know, why are we working so hard? If you're working so hard because you feel like your job is like legitimately changing the world or you love doing what you're doing, if you would do it for free, well then yeah, fuck it. Yeah, work a million hours a day and have a freaking blast doing it and, and feel really fulfilled. On the flip side, which I would say probably... 90% of the people are on the flip side, which is you're working to make money. Let's be real. Like, yeah, there's parts of the job that are fun. Yeah, there's a social you know, component of it. But then they, we're working to make money and then hopefully be able to save up enough PTO to go on vacation or save up enough money to eventually retire when we're 65 years old. Well, if the whole goal is to be able to go on vacation, well, why wouldn't we just maybe take a step back, scale back a little bit? Yeah, we might make a little bit less money, but if we have ample amount of free time to be able to do whatever we were going to do when we were going to retire in the first place. That seems like a pretty decent trade-off to me. So I thought that was a cool little excerpt from the book where, you know, he worded it much better than I did, but I think it is a good point to just remember like, why are we working so hard? Do we need to work this hard or can we work a little bit less hard, but have way more free time? So the last part of the book that I thought was really cool and it's a good way to kind of get yourself out of your comfort zone be able to handle rejection because a lot of things in life aren't just handed to you. You got to work for them is reaching out to celebrities or, or extremely powerful and influential people in whatever field you are in or want to be in or aspire to be in. Everyone's probably heard this, but you become a, a representation of the five people that you spend the most time with. So if you're spending all of your time with people that are, you know, whatever, doing drugs, drinking too much, cheating on their on their, you know, significant other, are are being lazy, broke, not making uh, you know, not making good money. Well, guess what you're going to become? A, 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 an image of them or a, or a repetition or a what's the word I'm looking for? A you're going to become essentially an imitation of those people. Now on the flip side, if you're hanging out with people that are, you know, got a better job than you that have, you know, a really stable relationship with their wife or with their husband, uh, you're hanging out with people that are, are go getters are hungry. You're hanging out with people that are in shape. Guess what's going to happen to you. You're going to naturally start to mimic them and become better fitness, better health, more money, just a more positive outlook on life. So reaching out to people that are either celebrities or experts in a given field does does essentially two things. One, it gets you out of your comfort zone and it allows you to actually go out and face rejection and try and get in touch with these people. And two, what it does is it allows you to be able to build a relationship with someone or a mentor-mentee relationship with someone that is levels and levels and levels ahead of you. This is why a lot of people that are born into wealthy families end up naturally being more wealthy. Yes, some of them probably inherit a lot of money, but also they're just sitting at the dinner table 
learning a bunch of crazy awesome information from their parents who have already been there done that seen it checked it off the list they're also hanging out with people their parents friends are also extremely wealthy extremely rich and if you're hanging out with a bunch of those people they don't want to watch their friend or their 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 kid's friend suffer and do really bad they're going to try and pull you up with them just like if you're hanging out with people that are not doing too well they're they're drinking too much they're they're hanging out with the wrong crowd they're gonna be trying to pull you down to their level so i think trying to reach out to celebrities and and influential people in your industry is a kind of cool concept so i challenge everybody to to do this reach out to people that would be like the absolute most kick-ass mentor for you. So for me, for example, my absolute dream, dream, dream mentor in life is Rob Deerdeck. He, if you don't know who he is, just turn on MTV. He's just always on MTV. He is a ex-professional skateboarder turned like TV personality, celebrity, entrepreneur, marketing guru. He has the life I aspire to have. I obviously grew up skateboarding and longboarding and snowboarding, and now I've kind of dived off into this entrepreneurial path. And so Rob Deerdick is like my dream, dream, dream mentor. Well, guess what I'm doing? I'm reaching out to him, trying to get five minutes of his time to pick his brain and start some sort of relationship with him so that I can learn from him and he can hopefully teach me. So there you go. Y'all heard it here first. I'm going to get Rob Deerdeck on this podcast. I don't know when, but that is my goal is to get Rob Deerdeck on this podcast. That is like my dream person to have as a mentor. So just think for you, who's, who's my dream mentor. If you're in, you know, DC doing politics, well, hell, maybe, maybe your dream mentor is Obama or, or Bush or whoever Trump. If that's your dream mentor, reach out to them. What's literally what's the worst that'll happen? They ignore you or they say, no, they say, go kick rocks. Cool. Welcome to life. So reach out to them on the flip side. Let's say that your dream, dream, dream scenario is I want to become a TV personality. I want to become a, a radio or podcast host or whatever. Well then reach out to Joe Rogan or reach out to Joe Buck or reach out to any of these people that have done it at literally the highest level. What is the worst that'll happen? First off, there's a there's a handful of them, and the worst that happens is you just they say no, they don't talk to you. So start big, aim for the aim for the stars, and cool, you'll land on the moon. And that kind of brings me to kind of to to deviate off this point, but similar but different. The other part of the book I really enjoyed was when they're talking about dreaming big and going big. I feel like it's it's something that I didn't really think growing up was was possible is you know you you set your dreams on like you know I want to play in the NFL or I want to I want to be a billionaire one day or whatever, whatever the case is there's a lot of people that dream big when they're kids the problem is once they get older and they've just been beaten down so many times gotten you know so many bad grades on their on their tests or on their exam and so many teachers tell them no you can't do this or your parents say no 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 let's not try out for that sport let's do this you know you just get told no so many times that you just eventually decide oh well f it yeah like i i can't do it well guess what as you get older more people are going to kind of jump off jump off the bandwagon of trying to chase their dreams so if you just dream big and like try and accomplish something huge, there's really not a lot of competition. Like, let's be real. If I'm sitting here today trying to make the next Joe Rogan experience podcast, that's what I'm going for. 
how many of these other people that are making podcasts, first off, first off, how many people want to have a podcast that don't even do it? And then two, how many people start a podcast and they're like, yeah, yeah, I hope I can get, you know, whatever, a thousand subscribers, or I hope I can get, you know, you know, a few friends to listen to it. This is the overwhelming majority of people. There's very few people that actually want to go for something, actually want to dream big because so many people are scared of failing. So as long as you're not scared to fail and you're just willing to swing for the fences, what's worse happening? You strike out. Fuck it. So I think that's another cool, cool part of the book is that, and I've noticed this too in my own life, is that I have friends that are way smarter than me, way more capable than me, and honestly should be achieving 10 times the amount of stuff that I've ever achieved in my life. But they just have gotten beaten down too many times where they just give up and they just are satisfied with where they're at in life or maybe not even satisfied. They just assume that they can't do it. Fuck it. Just dream big. And worst that happens is it, it doesn't work out and you pivot and you try something else. So you heard it here, getting Rob Deerdeck on this podcast. That is my end-all, be-all goal of this podcast. Um, not actually. I, I, I want to make this thing big, and I honestly just want to have fun with it. But he's my dream guest on the show, so help me get him on this podcast. <laughs> cool. All right. Moving on to the next part of the show, which is me talking about why I left Arslan Fleet. Um, or I should say, what is my involvement with Arslan Fleet? So let's start from the top. When Aaron and I, Aaron, my little brother, and I started Arslan Fleet, our whole goal was to build a massive Turo business where it, the, the, the dream scenario was we make money making other people money. So we are able to make money by helping people make money through rental cars. So that was the whole goal. Aaron is a Turo expert. He knows all about renting cars out, picking them up, dropping them off from the airport, all that fun stuff. I know a lot about business, about marketing, about sales, about how to grow a company. And so we figured, hey, together, I'll take your skill, Aaron, of being able to manage cars, match it with my kind of sales and marketing ability and, and business development skills. And I'll, I'll bring all the clientele. I'll bring all the people to you. And then you kind of manage the day-to-day -day operations of getting these cars to run. So that was kind of the, the scenario that we had written or kind of laid out. However, my side of the business, which was kind of the sales and marketing and business development side, obviously at first there was, there was nobody. So it was, it was, you know, at the beginning, Aaron's kind of sitting on the back burners waiting for me to, waiting for me to get the thing to blow up. Well, Pretty quickly, we went from no customers, nobody, to, quite frankly, more customers than we could handle. I was able to, you know, try different avenues of TikTok ads, to Instagram ads, Facebook ads, to Google advertisements, to working with different influencers, and then finally we stumbled upon Will, the financial wolf, who was going to start promoting our content online on YouTube. As soon as we found him and stumbled upon him floodgates opened. Aaron and I were able to get deal with Will where he was actually going to become a partner with us in the company. Will was going to be doing essentially just YouTube content for us. We were going to have him do, wanted him to do some other like kind of marketing stuff. End of the day, as long as he's promoting us on YouTube, that was pretty good for Aaron and I. So I was still on kind of the, the sales and marketing side of the house. Aaron was on the management side of the house. However, Hence the four hour work week where 
I try and set up everything in my life to where I have to put in as little work as possible and have it running at maximum efficiency. I was able to do that very quickly <laughs> on my side of the business when it comes to managing the sales and marketing side of the house. So my side of the business was completely buttoned up, good to go. I was spending or on, I would say on the marketing and sales side of the business, I was spending quite frankly, less than 10 hours a week on that side of the business. On the contrary though, the onboarding and management side was not as buttoned up. We had a lot of people in queue, a lot of people that had not yet been able to get their cars on the road. We had a lot of issues with cars getting stolen. We had issues with like mechanics and contractors that we were employing taking advantage of us or or overcharging us. And so I was spending all of my time trying to help Aaron on the management side of the house. End of the day, that's not really what I signed up for. That's not what I wanted to do. Also, it's it's not the side that I would consider myself an expert by any means at. It's, I'm good at it. I've, I've obviously done Airbnbs and I've had long-term rentals like for houses. It's quite frankly, very similar, but it's not something that I wanted to do or was really interested in doing. And so when I went to Aaron and Will and said, hey, look, guys, my side of the business is good. It is running better than we could have ever imagined. This is what I'm doing. Like, take it or leave it. They both got very uh, defensive or not defensive. They both wanted me to have more involvement on a day-to-day basis in the management aspect of the company, which is not what I signed up for and not honestly what I would consider myself good at or have any interest in because end of the day, my side of the house was was up and running and, and, and doing great. So I was like, hey guys, look, thanks, but no thanks. I'm not going to do that. So what we decided on was that I was going to take a step back in the company. I was going to sell a majority of my equity. So at that point, I owned 40% of the company. So I own 40%, Aaron owned 40%, Will owned 20%. I decided to sell 35% of my equity in the company back to Aaron and Will. And then I was going to retain 5% equity as essentially a silent investor, which means that I have no liability as far as what the company does. I have no voting power. I have no say in what the company does. But if they need me, if they want my help or guidance, obviously, I don't want to see the company fail. I still have a vested interest in the company succeeding. And so I still have that 5% and will still be helping out as the company as the company grows. So that's what I decided to do is I decided to sell my 35% um, and take a step back. I also decided to take my cars that I had at with Arson Fleet. One of them was a RAV4 hybrid that was also like doubling as like my daily driver. So it was like kind of dumb. I would almost never had it on Turo uh, getting rented out. So I took that off of the Turo platform. And then I had a Toyota Highlander that I also had on the platform that was being rented out all the time. I decided to take that out as well. I'm not saying that I won't eventually put cars back into our fleet. Uh, I just felt at this point that the management still had a little bit of ways to go and things to work out and figure out before I was comfortable having my cars in the fleet. So I decided to take my cars out and one is now just back to being my daily driver. And then the Toyota Highlander I'm working on selling right now. I bought that car for about 23.5. Uh, 
I'll probably end up selling it for around twenty to twenty-two thousand dollars. Kind of depends. So that is kind of the nature of where we're at right now. As far as my relationship with Aaron Will, obviously tensions were a little high when I said, hey guys, I, I'm not going to just keep helping out with other sides of the business that don't pertain to what I got in here to do. So at first, tensions were certainly high uh, and it was definitely a kind of rocky you know few weeks as I was as I was exiting the company because we were trying to decide if I was going to pull out my full 40% of the equity or if I was going to pull out just a portion or if I was even going to leave at all so it was definitely a little dicey at the beginning I was always honestly pretty cool with with the whole situation you know I obviously felt a little bit annoyed that, hey, look, guys, I like I did my side. My side's buttoned up. My side is running very smooth. Now you guys are taking taking away 40% of the company from me when we are still growing, still blowing up. And also, quite frankly, we couldn't afford what the company is actually worth um, to pay me out. So it's like, all right, well, I'm kind of like selling to you all at a discount, which is kind of annoying. So I was kind of annoyed from that aspect. On the flip side, obviously Aaron and Will are annoyed because like, well, the person that helped us do all of the sales and marketing also was helping out with getting attorneys, getting insurance, getting relationships with dealers and, and, and helping perfect the onboarding process and the management process. Like this guy's just essentially leaving us because he doesn't want to keep grinding away at the business. So like both sides had legitimate reasons to be like, yo, what the hell? So it was a little dicey at the beginning. It was also, I'd say more dicey when we were originally going to be buying me out my full equity, which would have put the company at a pretty tough uh, situation financially. So once we kind of came to an agreement that, Hey, look, I'm going to, I'm going to take a little bit of a, of a pay cut, quite frankly, on the amount of money you guys have to pay to buy me out, but I get to retain some equity in the company. It was kind of a win-win for everybody. It was a win for the company because they didn't have to pay me a bunch of money to, to have me leave. It was also a win for me because if Arslan Fleet one day in, ends up turning into some massive Hertz or Enterprise or Rent-A-Car, I don't feel like I got screwed out of all of the hard work I put in on the ground floor of the company. So all in all, you know, it was a little rocky there for, for a few weeks, but now, I mean, I'm a hundred percent cool with, with Aaron, obviously he's my brother. I'm not going to let anything get between me and my brother. And then with Will, I actually went and visited both of them post leaving the company. I went and visited Will actually just a few days ago. It was a great time. Going to have both of them on the podcast at some point, excited to talk to them about their experience since I've left kind of how it's been with me leaving. But all in all, that is what's happened with me and the company. If you all want, I'm more than happy to go into more detail about once I'll probably do this after I sell my car, if you guys want me to. But once I sell my Highlander, I'd be happy to go into like a big breakdown into how much money I actually made from the whole endeavor and, and kind of go into more detail there. But all in all, that is what happened with me and Arson Fleet. I'm still loosely involved on a when they need me basis, but I'm no longer doing anything on the day-to-day -day operations of the vehicle. I haven't been uh, since about January. And I do have total faith in Aaron and Will. Last but not least is the mailbag. I'm, I don't know how, I guess, I don't know how anybody found me and asked any questions because 
the podcast is like a few days old and is also like I I got like I got like multiple questions and I'm pretty sure I looked and I have like a couple like literally not even like more than a hundred views on this whole podcast. So a very a very active very small community that I have reaching out to me with questions. So I do really much appreciate the few people that listened and then also decided to to shoot me a question. So first thing first. The first question I had is it's a, and a, this is we had a little bit of a back and forth on on Instagram we were talking but this is in relations to uh rental cars on Turo. So when it comes to rental cars on Turo or rental cars in general, they were asking, "Do you account for depreciation slash wear and tear on tires and mechanical parts when analyzing a rental car vehicle?" So, yes, with Arsenal Fleet, if you ever got on a sales call with me or one of one of my reps at the company, we absolutely do factor in depreciation. Now, depreciation is speculative. So, it is not something that is there's no formula to determine exactly to a penny how much the car is going to appreciate or depreciate. So it is not like a perfect science, but yes, we do account for depreciation. Your average car depreciates by 40% over five years. So when we are doing the math on each vehicle that we're like presenting to a, a client of, Hey, this is the car that we think you should get. We are factoring in that the car is most likely going to depreciate by 40% over five years. Now, that being said, there's a bunch of different articles and, and websites and, and, and blogs that you can read that talk about what cars depreciate quicker or less quick than other vehicles. And so we would typically stick to cars that historically don't depreciate as quickly as your typical car. So these cars would include Jeep Wranglers, which were in our fleet, Subaru Outbacks, uh, Toyota Highlanders, Toyota 4Runners, uh, Honda CRVs, Honda Pilots. These type vehicles, honestly, a lot of Japanese vehicles, don't depreciate as quickly and are also very profitable rental cars. There are other cars that don't depreciate as quickly, like a Corvette or like a a Porsche 911, like a lot of these kind of like muscle or or supercars. Those cars, however, don't typically do as well on Turo. Another car that doesn't depreciate as quick and that we do have in the fleet are Teslas. Those don't historically depreciate as quick. However, those cars are also, they just haven't been around that long compared to these other vehicles. So it is a little bit hard to tell what's going to happen with them in the long, long run. But in the short term, Teslas are also have been shown not to depreciate as quickly. So yes, we do calculate in depreciation into kind of our calculations when going over what cars we're going to uh, to analyze. And then obviously, we definitely factor in wear and tear on the tires and mechanical parts 100%. Now that one's kind of tough to do because, you know, historically, you don't spend more than about $2,000 a year in maintenance and repairs on your car. That being said, that is over the life of you owning said vehicle. Well, some years you're going to spend quite literally like $0 or like a hundred bucks the entire year on a car. Other years, you're going to spend $10,000 because something terrible is going to happen to the car and you're going to have to replace the whole front bumper and, and, and steering, you know, like shaft drive, drive shaft, whatever. 
there's so it's kind of hard just like depreciation it's kind of hard to get that down you can't get that down to an exact penny but we do factor it in just as a as a average how much people spend per year on wear and tear and maintenance uh also what we do is we we obviously have insurance or you know arsenal fleet uh, has insurance that we require everybody to get on their vehicles also we require everybody to get set up with a car warranty and so what's What's awesome about a car warranty is that if any major things go wrong with a car, so if the engine fails, transmission fails, uh, power steering fails, any of those things go wrong, the car warranty will actually fix it for you. So you'd pay a hundred dollar uh, deductible, and then they will fix the transmission. You know that could be up to five to ten thousand dollars worth of uh, money for that repair. So. That also helps to keep that repair cost down. Obviously, if a guest crashes the car, well, then you don't really have to worry about it anyways. The the insurance is going to take care of that. So great question. Appreciate you, uh, you writing it. All right. All right. Cool. Question number two. Your YouTube video claims you only spend $100 on car insurance for Turo. I call BS. How? Are you only carrying liability? All right. I don't appreciate the BS in there, but <laughs> I do appreciate the question. So this is this is true. We only have to spend $100 or our clients only have to spend $100 a month on car insurance. The way we do this is through a company called Lula. It is a way that you're able to pull together a bunch of different cars and get lower rates on the insurance. So very similar, I used to sell health insurance back in the day, and we used to sell something called a PEO. This is where a bunch of small business owners will pull their, their companies together to get lower rates on their health insurance premiums. Same thing here. We're just pulling together a bunch of cars to get lower rates on the car insurance. Now there's a little bit of a catch with Lula, which is who we use at Arsenal Fleet. The catch with Lula is that they only protect you up to the state limit for liability. All right, what does that mean? So let's say that uh, a guest is driving our car down the road and crashes into a school bus and hurts a bunch of people. Well, if they get sued, your typical car insurance, you can say, hey, I want my liability coverage to be a million dollars, all right? So if, if somebody sues me, that company is going, or the insurance company is going to cover a million dollars in lawsuits. All right. Now with Lula, they set a limit. So it's, and it depends state by state because each state has a, a limit to how much you're required to cover or required to carry for liability. So in Colorado, it could be 50,000. In California, it could be 25,000. In Texas, it could be 100,000. Each state has a different limit that you're required to carry for liability coverage. All right. So that means if some, if a guest drives our car, crashes into a school bus, if they start suing us, we're only covered up to that state limit. However, there's a catch or there is something good that helps us, you know, kind of stay protected is there's something called the Graves Amendment Act. This is something that thanks to like Hertz and Enterprise and all those people's lobbyists, they got something passed where you can no longer just sue a rental car company or owner for something that a guest did. So it because what was happening is that Enterprise was renting out their cars, somebody would drive their car, get drunk, you know, and kill somebody, and then the family of the deceased person would be suing 
not only the drunk driver, but then also suing Enterprise or Hertz. And so they were just getting sued left and right from all these people. So their lobbyists were able to get something set up called the Graves Amendment Act. So this makes it so that you are not allowed to sue a rental car company or rental car owner past the state limit. All right. So if in Colorado, the limit's 50,000, they can't sue me for any more than 50,000. So cool. Lula's going to cover me. I'm good. However, the part that does get a little scary about the Graves Amendment Act is that there are a bunch of, as any law, there are a bunch of loopholes. So if the check engine lights on, if the maintenance required lights on, if the the driver of the car claims that they heard the brakes squeaking or if they thought the steering wheel was jiggling, basically there's a bunch of little loopholes where they can say, no, 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 the car was not properly maintained. And that's why I got drunk and killed a bunch of kids on a school bus. All right. So it it is a little tricky. The Graves Amendment Act is the Graves Amendment Act is great because it does protect you up to that state limit. However, on the flip side, there are ways for people to get around it and and still sue you claiming that the car was not properly maintained or whatever. So, yes, to answer your question, I know that was long-winded, but Yes, the insurance is actually only $100. Yes, it is legit. It does cover you. It's all good. It's all good and gravy. We've used it before to get things fixed on the car. However, it does require us to take meticulous notes about everything that's going on with the vehicle and you know document photos before and after every trip to make sure that if somebody did come to us and say, no, 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 you the, the brakes were squeaking or the check engine light was on, we would be able to have evidence proving that that was not the case. All right, cool. Last question for today. And uh, once again, I really appreciate y'all sending me questions. Keep them coming. The last question I have for today is, yo, Chris, would you recommend Airbnb or Turo? All right, I get this question kind of a lot, actually. And this is a good question. I would recommend, all right, back to the four-hour work week. I like doing whatever requires the least amount of time because I would rather make $1,000 $1,000 a month and spend one hour a month dealing with it, then make $20,000 a month, but spending 60 hours a week dealing with it. So for me, I'm all about how little amount of time do I have to invest in something for the maximum return on investment. So for me, out of the two, they both, quite frankly, require a lot of time, especially if you're going to do it on your own. The beauty of Turo is that it requires very little startup capital. Anyone can now, quite literally, anyone can start a Turo business. It requires essentially no money. You can go into any car dealership. They're all a bunch of slimy... I shouldn't say that. But but most car dealerships are trying to take advantage of people. AKA, they'll just sell a car to anybody. Anyone that has you know no money, bad credit, they don't care. They'll give anybody a car. So unlike a house where it's it's pretty hard to get a house if you don't know what you're doing, you have to get pre-approved. You have to show a lot of income. You have to have good credit. And so getting a house is a, a lot more barriers to entry. So I think Turo is phenomenal for either newer investors or people that are f- like first dipping their toe into you know trying to set up different forms of, of passive income uh, so not solely relying on their, their W-2 job. And so for those type of people, I think Turo is great. On the flip side, if you have the means to be able to acquire a property, uh, a house, I think that 
going the Airbnb route is better because you have more outs. With Turo, if you buy a car, you're only out. You're not gonna you're not gonna be able to take the car and five years later sell it for more than you bought it for. Typically. You're not gonna be able to buy a car and rent it out. Like you're not gonna be able to easily, I should say, rent it out to somebody for, you know, a year and say, Hey, here you go, I'm leasing my car to you for a year. That typically is is not something you can easily find. You're also not typically with a car going to be able to write off the the you know depreciate the car and save money on your taxes some scenarios yes i know you can do that in some scenarios with heavier weight cars but typically you're not doing that with with a car really your only option is to rent it out short-term rentals all right like a turo or get around or these other apps so there's only one out with a car on the flip side with a house if you buy it now there's also higher risk with a house because it's instead of being you know twenty thousand dollars it's two hundred thousand dollars or you know or more um and so with a house yes you can rent it on airbnb but if that doesn't work you can do a long-term rental if that doesn't work you can fix it up and flip it if that doesn't work you can you can live in it and rent out a bedroom there's just so many different outs with a with a property also you can write off the interest that you pay on it on your tax you can write off the taxes you pay uh, on your taxes you can there's just you can refinance the house and and get literally tax free money from it so there's just a lot of strategies with real estate that allow you to be flexible and allow you to pivot pretty quickly as long as you get a good deal on a on a house now i will say as well with a house it is it is higher risk, higher reward because they're just, they're just bigger purchases. Like a a cheap house nowadays is $200,000. Like that is, you're going to the sticks and you're finding a $200,000 house maybe. Whereas with cars, you can still find a $20,000 car. That's a dime a dozen. And so I, I think that's really what it comes down to is, are you a first time kind of investor type person that's trying to figure out other ways to make, make income go the Turo route. It's very, very easy to get into. Worst case scenario, you sell the car for a little bit of a loss, you lose, you know, maybe a thousand or two thousand dollars on it. Sucks. Not the worst thing in the world. On the flip side, though, with with a house, if you find the right house, you quite literally could set yourself up for the rest of your life. Like my first house I bought, I'm still reaping the benefits of buying that house. I bought it for two seventy four. It's now worth over uh, $450,000. I refinanced it. I pulled out almost $100,000 of tax-free money from the house. It, it's the best investment I've ever made in my entire life so far. On the flip side, though, if I would have bought the wrong house, you know, I'm not going to lose $1,000 or a couple thousand dollars. I mean, hell, people could go, like, people go bankrupt all the time from their mortgage. So I would say, I would say I'd recommend Turo. For, for newbies, I'd recommend Airbnb for people that have the means to do it and just do good research on it. Uh, I hope that answers your question. Don't know if I actually answered it. So <laughs> I was kind of talking in circles there. But anyways, all right, cool. Thank you so much for listening to the second ever episode of the Chris Arslan podcast. I hope you enjoyed me giving a quick recap of the four-hour work week. I highly recommend you, you go check it out at the library or buy it and give it a read well worth it. Also, hope you enjoyed my explanation of what happened with me and Arslan Fleet. Excited for my next episode, which is going to be going over one of the biggest 
the biggest mistakes I ever made in my real estate investing career. I actually had to eventually evict this tenant. So, you know, make sure you uh, stay tuned, subscribe um, to the podcast so you can listen to what happened with me and my one of my one of my worst real estate uh, mistakes I've ever made in my career. So um, please remember, subscribe, rate the podcast, review it. And please, 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 please send me more mailbag questions. I love answering your all's questions. And until next time, keep finding those different streams of passive income so we can all just be hanging out on the slopes together. All right, peace.